0: Good morning. In reverence for God's word, if you would stand as we hear it read. Our Old Testament reading is taken from the book of Psalms 68. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earths quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. O kingdoms of earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Our New Testament readings. The first is from John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then from Acts chapters 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, Will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. you, You may be seated.
1: Let's pray. Lord, it is so good to gather before you as a body to worship you in song together, lifting one voice, not just one voice as a congregation, but one voice with the rest of all of the saints around the world and who have gone before us and all of the angels and the heavenly host. Let us feel that unity today. By your spirit, bring us closer together. Help us see one another as one body and other other pieces of that same body with different roles to play with equal import. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It is quite exciting and humbling for me uh, to get to be up here one more time. Um, It was uh, from this pulpit, actually, that I first learned of the sufficiency of Christ. It was from this pulpit that I learned that life was not some test that I would pass or fail uh, and end up in either heaven or hell. Uh, It's from this pulpit that I came to understand the gospel of grace, little g, grace, not grace church. We don't have our own gospel. (laughs) And it's from here that I came to understand that it's not up to me. because of my own efforts. And it's that God calls me. And the works that I thought would determine whether or not I was worthy to stand in God's presence were shown to me to be utterly powerless by speakers from this pulpit. And then I also learned that it's not through my own power, And it's not through the speakers here, not through their power, that they were made worthy to deliver a message. But it was that a work was done in them, that the Lord made it it worthy and and they didn't have to be righteous enough to stand before anyone. Um, And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to you today and speak to your heart even though it's me. <laughs> uh, so reflecting on the readings this week, I, uh, I do really love the, uh, the Revised Common Lectionary. It, it is quite elegant in the passages that it picks throughout the year and puts together. And we loosely adhere to this lectionary for our readings. And sometimes we'll get on a specific topic, but uh, in the high holidays and things like that we we tend to stick to the lectionary and and that is a unifying thing through a, a lot of the other churches around the world they they all use this lectionary, not all but quite a few um, and and that is I think that is good uh, so uh, today we we call this the seventh Sunday of Easter, but this is the Sunday that we celebrate the Ascension, which would have been officially celebrated on Thursday, which uh, some churches will come together and celebrate it on Thursday, but but we celebrate it on Sunday. Um, and then next week is the Day of Pentecost, uh, where we celebrate that the Holy Spirit came down and um, and indwelled uh, the people whose who were in Christ and who was in them. Um, and so before the Spirit can come down, however, the Son of Man must go up and sit down at the right hand of the Father. And that's, uh, and that's what we hear about today. So uh, let me just start with Acts chapter 1. We read it earlier, but to refresh your memory. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So putting myself in the shoes of the apostles here, I'm reminded of some of the goodbyes that I have had to say in my life and the hollow ache that you feel when the goodbye is being said. And I just have to imagine they were feeling that to a maybe more painful degree than what I can quite picture because, well, they've been hanging out with God himself and, and they, at a time when they knew exactly who he was. And you can hear in that passage that they're, they're letting themselves hope that this is the time that he will restore the kingdom. And they let themselves hope that the last 40 days are just the beginning of the rest of their lives in close relationship with their Lord. And then he's gone. And he leaves a promise. And the promise is that the Holy Spirit will come to to them to give them power to witness. But it seems they needed another promise That wasn't quite enough. So as soon as he's out of sight, then two men come, stand next to them, and they promise not only that the Spirit's coming, but that Jesus himself will come back in the same way, and they can have that relationship again. And so that that is the hope that we have as Christians, and the hope that we have is not well understood by the world. They seem to think we hope for rewards and for eternal pleasure and for the ultimate goal, immortality. But while rewards and joy and everlasting life are on the table, that's a caricature of our hope. We have this hope that one day we will have a perfect relationship with Christ. And that we, the church, united as one body, will be united to Christ at the great wedding feast. And that we will dwell with the bridegroom forever. We aren't seeking rewards for the sake of rewards. I I think we all know that rewards as their own end don't satisfy in the least. I remember hearing the story of uh, Brian Billick, the Super Bowl winning head coach of the greatest and most beloved football team in the land, the Baltimore Ravens. And, you know, with, with Kenny, the Steelers fan, and Joshua, the 49ers fan, in Israel, I feel I can... But don't mention it to them when they get back. We can cut that from the tape. Uh, But the story goes like this. After they won the Super Bowl, Brian Billick goes back to his hotel room, and he begins to have a panic attack. And he realizes that everything that he's been striving for since he can remember, he's just accomplished. And that's it. There's there's nothing more. He got the reward. He got the trophy. He's always going to be introduced as Super Bowl winning head coach Brian Billick. But it's empty. There's there's nothing there, right? So the reward for the sake of the reward is not a sufficient end. And so then uh, what about eternal pleasure, right? Well, that sounds pretty nice but not pleasure as the end in itself. G.K. Chesterton puts it this way, and this one's probably worth memorizing, honestly. Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. So think about that. Going on vacation is quite pleasant, right? But after, a few days, you're kind of ready to get back and do something productive, right? And imagine uh, being stuck for all eternity in an all-inclusive resort, right? A a week there sounds like heaven, right? But a decade there sounds like hell, right? (laughs) So pleasure uh, doesn't do it, right? What, well, what about other things? Maybe it's not, maybe all-inclusive are not your thing. What about reading books or playing video games or riding a bike or, or hanging out with your friends, right? All those things are great when they are part of an otherwise meaningful life. And, and they gain meaning in themselves when they are a part of that. But when... They are the end in, them, in and of themselves when that's all you do. It's meaningless, right? So then, well, what about what about immortality? I hear worldly people talk as though this is the ultimate goal for mankind, to achieve unlimited life. And I was listening to a podcast the other day, and there was a researcher working on uh, like reversing aging, and he thinks the ultimate goal ought to be, you know, immortality. And he, he could not imagine that someone would not want immortality. He thought, he thought the only rational view is that living forever is the ultimate goal. And, and I thought, well, immortality to what end, Right? Let's just, let's just think about that. Uh, Immortality for the sake of immortality, or maybe for the sake of unlimited pleasure and rewards that also don't fulfill. Um, Let's just think about this. Just thinking about immortality as an end to itself. Um, Let's take the two options to the extremes. You have to choose between dying tomorrow or never being able to die ever, right? So I like to think, I heard this from, um, oh, stink. Uh, Well, I can't remember his name, so I apologize. But he gives the example of an astronaut. And an astronaut who has just had an accident on his spaceship, and he has to put all his skills to work to survive this event, and he makes it through, and now he is alive, praise the Lord, he's on his spaceship, yet he cannot function the spaceship and it's floating off into space forever. And he has two vials with him, and one of them is a suicide vial, and the other one is an eternality. Uh, an immortality vial. And so after a few weeks of deliberating and he's beginning to starve and now he's staring down the barrel of a slow starvation death, he decides to take the suicide vial. Imagine his horror when in his distressed state he accidentally took the immortality vial. And now he's millennia after millennia Floating off into space by himself. This, this sounds like hell, right? Now what is it? It's hell because it's immortality without relationship. It's immortality just for the sake of immortality. So we're seeing that it's not, it's, it's not sufficient as an end unto itself. So um, let, me, let me bring that back to scripture here. This exact situation occurs in the very beginning of the Bible. Chapter three Adam and Eve have just taken of the forbidden fruit, and they have just become creatures who can no longer enjoy relationship with their Creator, right? And so they fear Him now, and they cower in His presence. And He comes along strolling in the garden. And he, it seems that he's preparing to ask them to join him for a walk in the cool of the day, beneath the shade of the tree of life. And it's beautiful, yet they, they are terrified of his presence now. Because they cannot have the relationship with him that they were designed to have. So they can no longer exist in his presence. So what does he do? He protects them. And he grants them the great mercy of avoiding immortality. Listen to what he says. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You might have been told that that was a curse. But thinking of it this way, uh, it, read, go back and read the passage again. He, did, he cursed the ground, and he cursed the snake. But he didn't curse the man or the woman. And he protected them from immortality in that state, which would have been hell. So, uh, oh, sorry, I lost my place there. So then, what does he do? He guards the place back to the tree of life with two cherubim, right? Now, uh, that keeps man from wandering back and condemning himself to immortality. And the the cherubim become a bit of a theme. And you hear them a few times in the text being alluded to, but then they are mentioned specifically in the construction of the Ark of the Covenant at the tabernacle. So uh, it's a bit of a long passage, but I think it's worth it. Um, These are the instructions for the Ark. They shall make an Ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of pure gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark they shall not be taken from it and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work there are the cherubim Uh, shall you make them and on the two ends of the mercy seat make one cherubim on the one end and one cherub on the other end Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So do you see there are two cherubim on the atonement cover to be a lid for the Ark. If you read on, the construction instructions for the veil of the Holy of Holies, there are two more images of cherubim woven into the curtains that would separate the holy place from the most holy place, which is where the ark would be. And so uh, why have two cherubim specifically prescribed for the construction of the place where God's ark would rest? And I think in order to understand that, we need to try to understand the essential nature of arkness. And so there is another ark in the Bible, and maybe that one gives us some insight on this ark. God says to Noah, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it the length of the ark 300 cubits its breadth 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side make it with lower second and third decks third decks for behold i will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, and you. Did you hear the similarities there? We have something made of wood. It's covered on the inside and outside with something. We're told how long to make it, how high to make it, how wide to make it, and we're told to make a cover for it. There seems to be something that the text is trying to point us to, that there is a similarity between these arcs. Rabbi David Foreman, one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, he points out that there are some very surprising textual connections between the descriptions of these two arcs that go beyond what I've just mentioned. And it leads us to ask, what in the world is an ark? We don't use that word for anything other than these two vessels, and, and they're not even the same word in Hebrew. The word translated to ark when referencing the ark of the covenant is Aron, where the word for Noah's ark is Teba. So why do they both get translated into this word that we don't use for anything else? Like, no one talks about any other ark. We don't have contexts for arks. Um, and if you look it up, the etymology of the word ark, it's like, it's just ark. It's just the, the ark that we, it's arcane, right? But it's just a thing that you hold. And it's, not, it's just not used for other things. Um, so uh, Foreman says that the, the ark of Noah is the thing, the vessel that allowed Noah to live in God's world. Now, what would he mean by God's world? We're talking about something that helps him to survive the flood. But let's go back and think about what is it that was God's world. We have an image. I mean, imagine the flood, right? Imagine we have the floodgates opening up above. We have the waters coming up from the depths, and we uh, are losing the dry land. It's like what... What we envision is a world covered completely in water with raining straight for 40 days, so the clouds have to be over the whole earth, you would think, so there's no sunlight getting in. We have a dark world covered in water. That sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 1, right? Listen to this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there is a a place in time in which God exists and water covers the whole earth and that's it. And there's nothing else. This is God's world. And man cannot live in that state of affairs. There's no place for man to be safe. So before we get the let there be light event and before God says anything is good or not good or evil that that is the place that we return to when we see Noah in the ark and uh, the the Talmud which is a, a collection of Jewish oral tradition uh, the Mishnah is one of those things in the in the Talmud which is it's called the Oral Torah, but it's, um, it makes some connections to sort of fill in the blanks on the things that they think the text is pointing out that may or may not be there. But I, this one seems like it might be there. The, the Mishnah within the, uh, the Talmud says that God, in order to create a place for man to live, he performed three separations. And those three separations were the separation of light and dark uh, and then the separation of space which was when he separated the waters there was now space and then the separation of time which was when he created the uh heavenly bodies they were to mark the seasons and the days so time was created by these separations and so uh During the great flood, the Mishnah says that these three separations are torn down. When clouds cover the uh, earth, you cannot see the heavenly bodies anymore, right? And then you're inside of the ark, and there's darkness in there, and the water is coming from above and below, so the space is gone. That's what they're pointing out. And you need not necessarily um, believe that these... Three separations are in fact occurring but the imagery is quite helpful because when you look at the the, uh, creation of the tabernacle, those separations occur there and the Mishnah points them out as well. First we get a couple of them um, oh I want to point out one other thing because uh, well I skipped over it and it's relevant later. So uh, in Noah's Ark, uh, in the children's story, it looks quite nice, right? You have the the wooden beautiful boat and the animal's heads are sticking out of the windows and it's quite nice. But uh, this thing is has a roof over the entire thing and it is covered inside and outside with pitch, which is black and is stinky and is flammable. Uh, and you would if you're inside of that boat during the flood, I think that's not pleasant, right? And you're probably not gonna, you're gonna be judicious with your use of candles in a sea, right, with, a, with flammable substance all around your wooden boat, right? This, that's the image, right? And that's how man lives in God's world for 40 days. Um, now let's consider God's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. It is covered on the inside and outside with gold. And this is how man lives, or sorry, how God lives in man's world, right? So these arcs seem to be things that allow one to live in the world of the other. Um, And so it is also said to preserve the things that are put in in it. And when we read the book of Hebrews, we see that the 10 commandments uh, are in there. Aaron's staff that budded is in there. And then uh, a chalice containing some of the manna is in there. Now, the Old Testament only tells us that the tablets are in there. The the Mishnah, the oral tradition, tells us that Aaron's staff that budded and uh, and the uh, chalice of the manna are in there, that Aaron put them in himself after the event of the the staff budding to show uh, where the priesthood would lie. Um, And so the writer of Hebrews... Writing two Hebrews seems to be comfortable with using the oral tradition of the Hebrews to make a point. Uh, and so I want to point out another thing that the writer of Hebrews doesn't, but that uh, the Mishnah does. The Mishnah claims that Aaron's staff that budded is in fact a piece of the tree of life. And you would say, Well, okay, that's a little weird. And it is a little weird, but what's the point? The cherubim are once again guarding the way to the tree of life, which is dangerous for us in that state, right? Okay, so um, man, I am sorry, Faye, running the slides. I am totally jumping around here. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we've got the two arcs, uh, two cherubim on the lid of the ark, and then we've got. So that's one separation created, right? And then we have the two cherubim on the curtains to enter the most holy place. So that's another separation. And then we have these ram-skin curtains that cover over the holy place, which is where the priests would go to do the incense offerings, uh, and they would go every day to keep that thing burning. Uh, And the Bible doesn't tell us that that there are any cherubim on those curtains. But the Mishnah steps in again because it's trying to drive home the point, I think, and it says, no, there are, in fact, cherubim on those. And so, it is pointing out that there are three separations guarded by cherubim that create a space where God can live in man's world. But who is being protected? It's not God being protected, right? It is us being protected. And God doesn't dwell in the stinky black thing. He dwells in the the uh, shiny gold thing inside and out. So, it, it seems to be a fitting arc for God to be in. Now, uh, let's move on, because the Gospels uh, point us to something else. Oh, oh gosh, I did jump around. I'm sorry. One more, one more point before we move on to the Gospels. Um, so no, the, the regular priests would cross the barrier into the, the holy place, and once a year, into the most holy place, the high priest would go. And he would carry the blood of a bull to atone for his own sins, and the blood of a goat to atone for the sins of the people. And he could not go in without those. And when he went in, he would wear what? His white robes. He only wore the white robes to go in there. He didn't wear them for any other thing. Um, And he, after Aaron put those pieces in, he did not cross that last barrier. No one crossed that barrier. And no priest after the order of Aaron did, but eventually a priest after the order of Melchizedek comes up with a new way for God to dwell with man, right? And so let's, uh, th- there's some, I think some neat uh, symbolism here with the separations being undone, um, and the Gospels do seem to use this. Listen to this statement by Luke at the death of Jesus. It was now about the sixth hour, which is noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. While, so darkness over the whole land, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So. Darkness covered the whole land. That's separation number one is undone here. The celestial body's light fails. The sun is hidden. Separation two, number three is undone. And then the curtain to the most holy place is destroyed. Separation number two is undone. This could be coincidence, but it seems to me um, worth considering. Um, but when these separations are undone and Christ has died, there is no safe place. Place for God to dwell among men. This is the despair that I would think the disciples and those who knew Jesus and much of the world would have known quite well at that time that God does not dwell in the world at this time. But we know the rest of the story, right? We come to church on Sunday, and he's alive. He is risen every year, and what a great thing! Um, but uh, he comes back for forty days, and we discussed that at the beginning. This is the blissful time for the uh, for the apostles, and this time it's a little bit different because the the two distinct natures of God, the the man nature and the divine nature, are sort of showing up a little bit differently. The man nature is there, but it seems that the presence of the divine nature is a little bit more palpable than it was when Jesus was here the first time. And so man is now dwelling with God together without man dying. So here we have God with us. We have Emmanuel In a safe way, which could only be experienced by the high priest. And now it's available to all. So, in a way, Jesus replaces the ark for those 40 days. So, then, uh, he goes uh, up to heaven. Uh, Well, that is not the place that I thought I was at. Uh, he, hey Kenny will be back next week and it, it'll be good <laughs> you've only got another few minutes from me <laughs> uh, I, I just hid the nuggets in places that I would not find uh, when scrolling through it um, okay so we have the real presence of God dwelling directly with fallen man who does not need to bring the blood of a bull and a goat to the experience because what Christ gave that blood right he did the sacrifice once and for all time and so Hebrews comments on this and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, never to need to stand and offer that sacrifice again. Praise the Lord. So I think it is quite fitting that we read Psalm 68 today which is the psalm that would have been sung while the ark was being carried to the sanctuary after they kind of messed it up the first time with the new cart and Uzzah touching it and not making it through that experience. The next time they did it properly and they sing this song and uh, there seems to be a similarity between the ark going to its rightful place at the sanctuary and Christ himself going to his rightful place to sit at the right hand of the Father. And so now we have this moment where the ark is not here anymore. But this time it seems different because what Christ says, but the Spirit of God will come down and give you power to minister, to share the word. And and he says this, all mine Are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father keep them in your name which you have given me that we may be one or so that they may be one even as we are one. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It seems they're trying to drive home a point there about unity, but not just unity among us, unity between us and Christ, as there is unity between Christ and the Father. And so at Pentecost, we'll learn more about this next week, we receive the Spirit of God in us, thereby becoming the temple on earth. So not only can we stand in God's presence, but we can have his presence within us. But it's not as simple as standing in Jesus' presence on earth. Because, see, in contrast to the stinky black pitch-covered ark that preserved Noah and his family, uh, the white robes of Christ allow us to stand in the true and fullest sense where? In the eternal temple the one which Moses was shown on Mount Sinai, after which the earthly temple or tabernacle was fashioned. And that allows us to regain the relationship which makes immortality no longer a curse. Immortality without right relationship is hell immortality in the right relationship with your creator, doing for all eternity that which you were designed that is heaven don't seek immortality, don't seek reward don't seek pleasure these things are like salt they, they flavor the meal when sprinkled inappropriately but when you bottoms up the Himalayan pink that's a lesson you only need to learn once Right? Now, to confess, I've had to learn that lesson with almost every other spice in the cabinet, but the salt one I only had to learn once. So what should we seek? Seek the relationship. Right? And because of the once and for all sacrifice, you don't have to travel to the temple to meet the Lord. You don't have to wait. You can seek the relationship right now. And you can take the hand of Christ and begin strolling in the garden, beneath the shade of the tree. And that creator, he calls to you. Right? And you don't have to cower like Adam and Eve had to cower. Your, your sin doesn't need to make you do that. So take heart. If it is the relationship that you desire then you will find you are already wearing the white robes. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, bringing us together today. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the offering that you made on our behalf, giving your own son the same way you, you saved uh, Abraham, from needing to do, you did it, and through that, uh, your son is glorified, and we praise his name, and we do look forward to that great wedding, uh, that wedding feast of the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.